Follow along with me. Joshua chapter 5. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted. There was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeah Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. The Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the product of the land, produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Joshua himself. Father, I ask that you would come, bless the preaching of your word, Father, and cause your word to do a work inside of our hearts and our minds this morning, a work of transformation and change. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. You may be seated. This passage is uh, obviously, for me, moving, as you can tell. Um, you're supposed to cry at the end of the sermon, not in the midst of reading the text. At least that's what they teach you in preaching school. That's, that's not true. Not true. When I ask you this question, I want you to write down the answer to it at any point in time when the Holy Spirit gives you the answer. What is it in your life that you are seeking spiritual victory in right now? place in your life where you're just begging God, you're, you're leaning into God and you're saying, I need victory in this area of my life. Something that you've been 
seeking for a long time. I don't know what that is, but you do and the Lord does, and I trust him to speak it to you. What is that place in your heart, your mind, your life where you are seeking spiritual victory? The reality, I found this quote on the screen in front of us. Uh, I found this quote in a, in a book this week. It says, the prerequisite for spiritual victory is renewed trust in and obedience to the Lord. That's the prerequisite for spiritual victory is trust and obedience. When you look at this text that I just read, the Lord has just done a really miraculous thing in bringing the Israelites across a flooded Jordan River. If you put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites on this day during this passage, it would make absolute total sense to storm the gates of the city of Jericho, right? Um, verse 1 tells us that the kings of their enemies' hearts were melting like butter under a hot knife. Well, you don't wait at that moment. You charge the gates of that city. That's not the way the Lord does His work, though. The Lord's timing is not our timing. The Lord is not motivated by the urgency of victory over His enemies. It doesn't motivate Him. Victory over His enemies is a piece of cake for Him. Lord, I think, is more concerned, as you look at this passage, with his own people's capacity to trust him and to obey him as they walk into spiritual victory. I think that's the Lord's concern. That's why I say it, the prerequisite for spiritual victory is renewed trust in and obedience to the Lord. So as you look at this text, and you'll see on the next slide, which will be the only slide we've got for you for the rest of the sermon, lots of reasons, but Basically, three things that are broken down in this text that I've seen and outlined. So if you're an outliner, you got it. You see Israel basically renewing their trust and renewing their obedience to the Lord through the practice of circumcision, number one, through the observance of the Passover, number two, and then through worshiping God's presence, number three. So if we look at these three things... Um, trust that the Lord will um, speak to each of us about that area of our lives that we're seeking victory in. First thing that we notice is that Israel needs to trust and obey God, and the way that they're going to do that is through circumcision. Right? At first glance, you might not think, well, that seems like a really big deal, but uh, it is. Verses 2 through 9. I'm going to unpack this for, uh, this for us. And as we think about circumcision, as we look at what happens in these verses 2 through 9, uh, there is a quote from an author who says this, says, we cannot expect God's blessings to be seen in public obedience to God's commands. So I want you to think about what I just said. Don't miss this. We cannot expect God's blessing to be seen, visibly observed in public obedience to God's commands if there is hidden compromise in the private world of the self and the family. So. You might take that personally, but you think about that corporately for a church, right? You think about that corporately for a church. On Sunday mornings, we all look a certain way. But if as a church family, we have a certain way of behaving here on Sunday mornings and in our community, in our neighborhood, right? Um, that if in the background, in our private familial lives, there is hidden 
compromise and sin, we can expect no public blessing. None. Because it would be called hypocrisy, right? This is why the Lord commands Joshua to make some knives out of some rocks and circumcise the men of Israel. Joshua, more than happy to obey the Lord. It's important to note um, here too as you're looking at this that God says to do this a second time, right? Kind of a, might be something that caught you. He says do this a second time, verse 2. He says that, it's, it's kind of a play on language, but he says that because circumcision had been instituted a long time ago under Abraham's leadership, many generations earlier, all the way back in the book of Genesis chapter 17. Okay, so you go all the way back there, the first place it was instituted. And it was instituted then with Abraham as what, what you would call a covenant, but it's a sign. It's a sign of Israel's trust and obedience to the Lord. It was a visible sign of their trust and their obedience. And then, and then you move forward in the story. From Genesis, you move forward to Exodus, and you see Moses, right? Uh, Moses, you might remember, is who Joshua was the assistant to. So you got Abraham who institutes it, then you have Moses. There's this episode where God comes to Moses at the burning bush, right? And that's going to be significant. Keep the burning bush open in your mind. Don't close that box. We're going to go there again later. He encounters God at the burning bush, and... Uh, God calls him to go confront Pharaoh for uh, his abuse of God's people. Now, uh, Moses uh, gives God like 10 reasons on a list why we shouldn't do this, God. I'm not your guy. Go find somebody else, Lord. That's kind of the way it ends. Very next verse right after that. This is uh, Exodus. I remember right, Exodus chapter 4. Very next verse in, in chapter 4 uh, says that God is so angry with Moses that he almost kills him. Now, could be because God, because Moses has resisted God in trusting him obediently, right? We think of Moses like a hero, but let's not forget, every hero in the Bible is just as big of a coward and a sinner as you and I are oftentimes. So on the one side, it could be his resistance to the call of God in his life. But if you take this principle back a little bit further, we find as you read this story that uh, Moses had neglected his family, ministry to his family. He had not circumcised his son. His wife, Zephora, figures it out. And she's like, crap, my husband's going to die. Circumcise the son, touch the foreskin to the feet of Moses. Kind of a really weird, gruesome story to be thinking about. And God relents. So first story is Abraham. Second story is Moses. These are some of the things that we see in Scripture as we look at circumcision. Circumcision is uh, an, an issue of trust and obedience, and it has dire consequences for disobedience. And the people of Israel apparently had not been circumcised during the time of their wilderness wanderings after coming out of Egypt. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. Victory in the promised land would be absolutely useless to the Israelites if they were in danger of experiencing the wrath of God against their sin. Why have victory in the promised land if God's just going to annihilate you for your private disobedience? Right? Why have public blessing privately you're under God's wrath? 
That's the, that's the seriousness of what's taking place here. Well, thankfully, Israel has just experienced the miraculous move of the Lord in bringing them across the flooded Jordan River after years of wandering around the consequences of their sin. Anybody else here ever experienced that? You spent, you spent years wandering around the consequences of your sin, whether it's your pride, it's your anger, lust, hatred, whatever it is, complacency, laziness, whatever it is, you spent years wandering around that, and then you have these moments, these mountaintop moments, where God shows up, he does something miraculous, and he brings you across the river, right? He brings you across that, and you go, oh man. And then immediately he shows you, hey, there's something else I want to work on. We're not done yet. We're not in heaven yet. Every time you and I think we've arrived, we find out that God's up to more. We're not complete. Don't let that cause despair in you to know that. Let, let that cause joy in you to know that. Let that cause hope in you to know that you look forward to a place that is better and different than here. Right? Thankfully, Israel has experienced that. So their response to the Lord's command to be circumcised, it was obeyed instead of ignored. Um, so I want you to imagine how hard it must have been to trust and obey in this moment for Israel. Put yourself in Israel's shoes. Their, their enemies were frightened. Like I said earlier, seems like the most opportune time to move ahead with an all-out assault on Jericho. But God's plan is what? God's plan is to take his people and put them under the knife to prove their trust and their obedience in and to him. So I would imagine that the pain of enduring circumcision as an adult would have been excruciating. I was not circumcised as an adult. I circumcised a baby, so I don't remember it. But I'm just imagining the sensitivity of the area of the body that we're talking about and the kind of pain that God is causing his people to endure before they taste full victory. There's a principle in this to think about. No pain, no gain, right? Victory would have been useless had they not experienced this pain first, I believe. So, I imagine that. I imagine the fear. I imagine the fear in this moment for Israel of knowing um, if I'm in their shoes, that I could not actually physically fight the enemy. You think about that, right? All of Israel's fighting, warring men, they're in a hospital bed. And the most sensitive parts of their body are bandaged up in pain. If Israel's enemies hear about this and decide to make a move, they're absolutely helpless, aren't they? You're not going to jump out of your bed and defend yourself, are you? <coughs> Isn't this exactly where the Lord wants us, though? Does, doesn't he need us to move out of our self-sufficiency and into complete dependence upon him so that he might show us that he alone is able? Isn't that what's needed? I can imagine the excruciating agony of waiting whatever period of time it takes to heal from this kind of surgical operation. Scholars argue all sorts of different ways about this. From the day of the text, go back to the previous chapter, seems like it might have been four days. That seems hard to uh, 
received, so it could have been longer. Later on, the text says that they ate of the fruit of the land that year. Could mean for a year. Could mean it was just whatever year it was. So don't really know. Whatever time it took, doesn't matter. Whatever time it took, there would have been agony of waiting that period of time to heal from that kind of surgical operation, waiting upon the Lord for his timing. Nevertheless, in, in the midst of all this, what you see, what comes clearly to the surface is Joshua is obedient in verse 3, and Israel is obedient in verse 4, and the result of their obedience is that the Lord takes away the reproach or the stains of Israel's sin, right? That they are now known. They've been known for 40 years, wandering around in the wilderness for their disobedience. They're no longer known for that. God rolls away that reproach in these moments. They're now known for their trust and their obedience to the Lord. Isn't that what we would want the neighborhood south of the tracks here in Hastings to know about the people of the well, that in the face of anything, we would trust him and we would obey him? Isn't that what we would want? Isn't that what the Lord would want? Isn't that what it means to bring glory and honor to his name, not only to this city, but to the ends of the earth? This really is an image of faith-filled, obedient action on the part of God's people. Now, I do think it's really important um, to note briefly here uh, that the physical act of circumcision there in the Old Testament, physical act of circumcision in the Old Testament, it points to a spiritual reality for us under the new covenant. In other words, uh, you have physical circumcision over here before the cross of Christ in the Old Testament. That physical circumcision before the cross of Christ, it points to a spiritual reality for those of us on the other side of the cross where we are at today. Um, Both point to trust and obedience. Both of them. That physical thing that we observe in the Old Testament has its spiritual implications for us today. The New Testament writers are clear that the circumcision does not save you. You read some of the epistles in the New Testament, you'll find that as as they planted churches throughout the New Testament, one of the major issues that kept coming up was this. And to be saved, you've got to be circumcised. And the New Testament epistles and the apostles were clear. Hey, listen, that, that physical act didn't save you. It's a spiritual thing that needs to take place. It's by faith. It's by trust in what God promises in the cross of Christ that the result of salvation comes. So you can track this doctrine down in passages like uh, Colossians 2, 11 through 12, Philippians 3, 3, which actually Chris read from Philippians 3 this morning, so that's an interesting. I didn't know he was going to share He didn't know I'm preaching this, so that's the Holy Spirit at work. For sake of time, though, I want to get moving on. I want to say that when someone surrenders their life, if I haven't been clear, when someone surrenders their life to Jesus, when someone trusts in Christ's work at the cross, when that person is baptized in water into the family of God, when that person's life has got to be marked by faith-filled, obedient lifestyle, once again, the prerequisite for spiritual victory is a deep and abiding trust in and obedience to the Lord. Two. Two. Israel needs to trust and obey God through the Passover. Right? Verses 10 through 12. Move on from circumcision now. 
Don't close the box completely, but let's move to a different box. Think about Passover. It's the next thing that kind of happens in our text, verses 10 through 12. As I look at it, as I study the verses, as I read the commentaries, it doesn't appear that the Israelites stopped celebrating the Passover in the wilderness wandering. So while circumcision didn't happen, it needs to be reinstituted, the Passover was most likely being observed. Numbers 9, 1 through 5 at least makes that truth presumably clear. So you can check that out in Numbers 9 if you want to. Uh, so I don't think the issue here is necessarily, again, reinstituting something that they had stopped doing. I think the issue is, is continuing to experience the blessings of the Passover through trust and obedience. So if you understand the story of the, of the Passover, um, you might remember that the Passover is just simply God's death angel passing over a home because it's marked by the blood of the sacrificial lamb, right? It's back in Exodus. And, and that whole story points to the reality that we have in Christ. That because of Christ at the cross, death no longer has a hold on us. It's no longer our enemy. We're going to die someday, but we have a promised land on the other side of that that's our spiritual reality. So, Passover. It's interesting as you look back at the story of the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, Again, the first institution of the Passover, where that angel of death passed over the houses that were marked by the blood of the sacrificial lamb. That sacrificial lamb was slain on what day, do you think? The 14th day of the month. The 14th day of the month. I say it again. The 14th day of the month. Now look back at your text. When does it say that they practiced the Passover here on the 14th day of the month? This detail is really important because it tells us this. It tells us that Israel was behaving in full trust and full obedience to their promise-keeping, life-saving God. Trusting God results in faith-filled, obedient behavior to the extent that they would even pay attention to the exact day of the month to observe Passover. <coughs> Move down, you look at verses 11 through 12. 11 through 12 add some further importance to this. The author of Joshua explains that immediately after uh, the Passover, after they observed that on the 14th day, the people of Israel ate of the fruit of the promised land, right? <coughs> when the blessing of the fruit of the promised land, um, it followed their trust and obedience and circumcision. And it followed their trust and obedience through the Passover. But the point here is so significant in regards to this eating of the fruit of the land. So significant that you might notice the author of Joshua draws our attention to that point that they ate of the fruit of the land three times. Three times the author repeats that. You might not notice that on an initial reading. That he repeats that three times. You might be saying, why are you pressing the point point here is that God's blessings abound over and over and over again in response to what? That's right, in response to our obedience. You look all throughout the Old Testament, and that is the theme that you see. Even all throughout the New Testament, it's the theme that you see. 
Grace is not laid aside by the preaching of trust and obedience. Trust and obedience is actually the outcome and the result of a work of grace in our lives. When, when, when somebody lives in, in absolute licentiousness, that's not the result of a work of grace. Blessing is the result of obedience and trust. And obedience and trust is a result of a work of grace. Hmm. The prerequisite for spiritual victory is a deep and abiding trust in and obedience to the Lord. Finally, number three, uh, Israel's trust and obedience results in God's presence, verses 13 through 15. Israel's trust and obedience results in God's presence. Now, um, I, I do want to combat something. Um, way too easy for us to read this text. Hear this kind of a sermon through the eyes and the ears of a so-called prosperity gospel. Y'all have heard me rant about it enough, but I think it's really important that even for those of us who are like, man, I don't buy into a prosperity gospel, uh, we're Americans. And the prosperity gospel has soaked and saturated so many things that I don't think that we really get how, all, how much it actually affects us. So good for me to pause for a moment, I think, say this, too easy for us to believe that if we do right things, then I will experience health, wealth, and physical prosperity. Too easy for us to buy into that. There are some small elements of truth, as I've been preaching, in the fact that when I do right things, then things generally go well, such as I change the oil in my car, the car is going to last a little bit longer. If I don't try to cook food on high, and I cook it on medium, it's going to cook a lot better, right? So there's general principles in this that are absolutely true. But if I'm faithful to my wife, my marriage is going to be a lot healthier. Right? So doing the right thing does produce good results in general. But not always in specific. Maybe it would be a good way of saying it, right? Like every prophet in the Old Testament did the right thing, and what happened to them? But Jesus did the right thing, and what happened to him? Okay, so it's important for us to not forget that the, the real result of trusting the Lord, the real result of obeying the Lord, is the blessing of the presence of the Lord. David, when he prayed in Psalm 51, take not your spirit from me, was simply praying, don't take your presence from me. Oh, I made a mistake so bad, he says. Don't take your presence from me. That's the real result of trusting and obeying God. His presence would be with you. See, the physical blessing of the promised land that we're reading about here, that physical blessing of the promised land, it's only meant, it's only designed to awaken our desire for the spiritual reality of heaven. In the perfect presence of our Savior God, where there is no more sin, there's no more pain, there's no more shame, there's no more guilt, there's no more tears. Everything that you or I could possibly be seeking total and complete spiritual victory in. Whatever that is that you put on your list when I first started out. Anything 
the full and complete victory in that area will be once and for all dealt with when you walk into heaven. You notice, you look now at verses 13 through 15, that Joshua, he's, uh, he's out wandering around Jericho. He encounters a man, right? It's possible that Joshua was taking a walk. I'm going to strategize about how they would attack Jericho. Probably what I would be doing. Maybe he's reliving the miraculous things that the Lord had done so far in their midst. Maybe he's enjoying a leadership win. That would be a really good leadership win that every man in your congregation, <laughs> grown man, listened to you and said, yeah, cut me up with some rock knives. Just, maybe. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> there's a lot less things that we probably try to call each other to as men. That we're like, why won't he do this? And so I, maybe he's celebrating that with the Lord. Trust me, I don't think you're ever going to see a day when I get up on this stage and say, guys, rock knives, let's go. <sighs> it's, it's possible that that's what he was doing. I uh, was in just enjoying that experience. Just of Israel's obvious trust, obvious obedience to the Lord through that circumcision and through the Passover. Um, but either way, either way, Joshua encounters a man. A man standing right in front of him in full battle dress with his sword drawn for the fight. I, I don't know if you can experience this the way that, the way that I experience this, this text. You can experience my emotion, but this is a big moment. Joshua's question in verse 13, it'd probably be the question that I would ask. It'd probably be the question that you would ask. It's an appropriate question, right? Hey, are you? Man, are you, you, you for me? Or, or are you for them? Who, who are you for? It's appropriate, but it's the wrong question. It's, it's an appropriate question, but it's the wrong question. You, uh, you find this um, in, in the man's response. Who do you fight for? Me or them? The answer is no. No, but no to both sides of your question. I don't fight for either one of you. There's only one person that can answer the question that way. Okay? I'm not fighting for either one of you. I, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. I'm here. You're not alone. In other words, he says, I haven't come here to take sides. I came here to take over. What's Joshua's response? He falls flat on his face in worship. There's only one reason for that. This is Jesus. Can you imagine what it would be like have Jesus come and stand in front of you and say, I'm here. 
never leaving you, never forsaking you. You'll never be alone. I am in charge. I'm taking over those circumstances in your life. They don't rule you. I will give you the victory. Can you can you hear the voice of your father today saying that to you? Now in this moment, that's the power of preaching, it's the power of his word as he would say that to you. God is the only being that could receive worship this way. This man with his sword out and his full battle dress, he didn't rebuke Joshua. It's the same experience. Go back to the burning bush. The man that trained Joshua to never seek victory outside of the presence of God. And God gives Joshua the same experience that he gave. Moses. Oh, that we would pray that God would reveal himself to and through us this way. What do you think? Prerequisite for spiritual victory is a deep and abiding trust in and obedience to the Lord. No. In conclusion, I have to say that I, Chris talked about humility this morning and I had planned to say this, um, so I feel like it's providential. I, I don't know where each of you is at this morning. I know many of you were small enough for me to know enough of us. I know some things about you. How easy it could be for me as a pastor to fall into pride and think because I know some things about most of each of you in this room that I know everything. I'm limited. I'm really, really limited. God is unlimited. There's no limitation upon what he knows and what he can do in you, in us, in this neighborhood, and to the ends of the earth. No limitation for him. He, I believe, has stepped in and said, I'm here and I've taken over. So you don't need me to make really slick applications all the pragmatic stuff that would be easy for me to lean into like here's how you can raise your kids better and here's how you can manage your finances better and here's how you can love your wife better good things and I don't know uh, what your unique sin is I don't know what kind of pain or brokenness or mistrust or fury that you walked in with today and I don't know what your wilderness consequences have been like I I don't know where you are asking God for victory right now, but you do. And the Lord does. And I do know that spiritual victory is the result of trusting and obeying Jesus as our Savior and King. Uh, Many of us want to be saved from the fires of hell, but we don't want to fully surrender to a king. We want fire insurance, but we don't want someone to rule us. We like to take God off the throne and put ourselves on it. We're just like Israel, really, uh, fearful, sinful, rebellious. Now, I don't know what your barrier is today uh, for you. I pray that God's torn some of that down for you through the preaching of his word today. I do know this. Jesus gave his life at a cross on Calvary. 
And when he gave his life on that cross and he was resurrected three days later in this awesome display of victory over Satan's sin and death. Now listen to me. Death may very well be our most feared human enemy. Maybe the one thing that all of us fear the most, whether we're willing to admit it or not, because we're all going to die someday. Death comes for every person. And yet death has been swallowed up by the death of Christ. Death itself may seem like an unstoppable force that swallows up life after life. But even that fearful enemy has been swallowed up by the death of Christ. Jesus, according to Philippians 3, was completely obedient to death at the cross on your behalf as he trusted his Father in his sacrifice so that you and I could experience his perfect presence forever. Is there any reason why you wouldn't want to fall on your face right now and worship this Savior King? Is there any reason why you wouldn't want to? <coughs> if you're here, you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior. Uh, you can right now in the next few moments. And trust him right now. And we'd like to pray with you about that if that's you during our time of communion. If you're here and you've trusted in Jesus, but you've been wandering around in the wilderness and the consequences of your sin for longer than you can remember, and you have an area in your life of victory that you have been begging God to step into and give you victory for, um, might I conclude with you that it very well could be that you need to renew your trust and your obedience in your Savior. Not that you can get re-saved. That would be a heresy. But that you can renew your commitment and trust and obedience to the Lord out of the fact that His grace is sufficient for you. So regardless of where you're at today, uh, you can experience victory, I believe, over your sin and over your shame and over your guilt over your fear, over your pain, over your rebellion, over whatever area of your life that you are seeking victory in. You can experience that because spiritual victory is the result of trusting in and obeying God, your King, Jesus. Amen? We pray. Father, as we close, I pray that you would come and be powerfully present with us that you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Trust you to answer that prayer this morning. In Jesus' name, everybody said.